You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We're going to wrap up chapter 32 and go into 33. Exodus chapter 32 is where we're at today. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we uh, dived into the... uh, Golden calf story, um, the idol that Israel sets up after hearing all the commands about how they should not put other things before God and how they should not create graven images, they do exactly that, right? In the midst of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, they immediately default into what they know, and that is to build idols, to turn their uh, hearts and minds' attention to created things, which is oftentimes what we do uh, when we get put into a similar spot, that is waiting on God, trying to deal with the delays of God, um, growing restless and impatient with God. Um, It's in those times when we start to recreate and redefine who God is oftentimes, particularly his rules for us, right? So we encounter things that we want to do. We know that God says not to do them, but we really want to do them. And so we start to recreate and redefine who God is and what he requires of us. We try to manipulate God's word so that we can do ultimately what we want to do. It's a source of discontentment. Um, And then when we get caught in it, oftentimes we want to compare and contrast ourselves with others to excuse ourselves, right? So the way that we atone oftentimes for our sin is to compare, hey, we're not as bad as other people. That's what Aaron does, right? Aaron is the one who constructs the idol, but he talks about how evil the people are. It was their idea. It was their want that he tried to satisfy. He makes excuses. Hey, the, the idol just jumped out of the fire. It wasn't me who did it right? And that's oftentimes what we do. We compare ourselves to others. We make excuses for the steps that we took. We saw that just as Israel disobeyed God by distrusting his plans and distorting his ways, we too must be careful to resist the temptation to grow impatient with God's timing and to grow discontent by turning to idols to meet our needs. What we saw as application last week is that we want to side with the Lord always by taking appropriate action towards the sin around us. We want to we want to push back and fight against sin around us. Now, not with the same sword that the Israelites did, right? The Levites come forward and Moses solicits, solicits their help. They take swords and they go kill 3,000 people who were largely responsible for the idolatry, right? We said that in today's context, that's not what we do, but we do take a stand against sin, whether it's at school, at the lunch table, or whether it's in the workplace, in the break room, we push back against sin that we see around us. We side with the Lord, is what Moses called them to. And then we also said that we always answer the call to return to the Lord's side when we fall into sin, right? Moses extends this opportunity of repentance when he comes down from the mountain and basically says, who's on the Lord's side? Like who wants to come back to the side of the Lord? And that's where the Levites responded. So we want to side against sin. And we also want to stay on the side of the Lord when we fall into sin. We want to be faithful to come back. All right. So that draws our attention to the end of chapter 32. We left off here in verse 31 or verse 30, where it says, The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses says, I've got to have conversations with God to see how we move forward. How do we move forward in the midst of this tragedy? Is there a path? Is there a path of acceptance? And so he says, I got to go see if I can make atonement. So we pick up reading in verse 31. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, 
This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Our summary sentence for today, God carries out his plans by working to preserve his people, specifically by communicating planned judgment unless his people repent as planned, which enables him to maintain his merciful presence with us if we truly desire it. God carries out his plans by working to preserve his people, specifically by communicating planned judgment, unless his people repent as planned, which enables him to maintain his merciful presence with us if we truly desire it. For our kids, God doesn't change his mind, but he does change us so he can treat us like he wants. We're going to jump right in today trying to answer three questions. We're going to back up from the text that I just read to you and look back at the previous conversation that God had with Moses. I told you last week we would come back to 
the conversation where God says he's going to wipe out all the Israelites and start over with Moses, and then Moses prays and mediates for the people, and God relents from that. We're going to talk about what that means. Do we understand that as God wanted to do this, and then Moses stepped in, and so he changed his mind? Or is that what God always intended to do? So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at what it means for him to potentially blot people out. Right? Moses appeals to God and says, if you're not going to forgive Israel, blot me out of the book. And then God responds by saying, I'm not going to blot you out. I'm going to blot those who sin out. So we're going to talk about what that means. And then the last question that we're going to look at is, does God leave his people? Does God depart? Does his presence get removed from us ever? What does that mean and what does that look like? So three kind of difficult, challenging questions that we want to think about this morning from our text today, and I want to hopefully help you see how it directly applies to your life, why it matters for us as we seek to move forward, right? Exodus 33 is all about moving forward. We just had a disastrous failure. How do we move forward in our faith journey? That's true of all of us. There's times where where we come to a point of failure, a point of loss, some type of major life change. How do we go forward? How do we stay on the journey? How does Israel get back on track? So we're going to look at how that works for us today too. All right. First, we're looking at, does God reverse his plan? So today's about reversals, erasures. Does he blot us out? And then also um, the idea of departure. Does he leave us ever? We'll start with the idea of him reversing his plans And the application for us is that we pray for God to keep his promises. Does God reverse his plans? Pray for God to keep his promises. Number one today, God doesn't change his plans, but does allow for his anticipated actions to be adjusted. God doesn't change his plans, but does allow for his anticipated actions to be to be adjusted. What does that mean? Well, God's anticipated response to the people and their sin is both calculated and just for keeping his promises and responding to the sin. So if we back up into chapter 32, I told you we didn't read it today, but we wanted to come back to it today. The idea that Moses and God have this conversation where Moses is imploring, the text says to God, to not do what he has suggested. The idea that he has seen the people, they're stiff-necked. He says in verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses implores the Lord, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He goes on to talk about the reputation of God. If you do this, the Egyptians will say evil things about you, that you just brought the people out to kill them. Verse 13, he appeals to the the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't forget the assurance that you gave to them, that you would multiply their offspring, that you would give the land promised to them, to their offspring. And verse 14 said, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. How God wants to respond, or really the better way of saying that is how God communicates that he can respond is absolutely appropriate right? Like his, his justice towards the people is absolutely appropriate. And we talked last week about how it doesn't really violate his promises because Moses is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He can start over with Moses and still keep his promises. Now, we would look at it and say, man, that doesn't seem to fit what you did promise because now you're going to wipe out all these offspring and start over But in theory, God can keep his promises by doing what he suggests here. 
He communicates his anticipated plans at times to generate movement by his people, right? Like this is what he's doing. And we talked about this more extensively last week that he communicates what he could do to get Moses moving, to get Moses motivated, to get Moses to step in and respond for the people. He does this in Genesis 18 when he communicates to Abraham, hey, I've heard the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to go down and bring judgment upon them. What does Abraham do? He acts as a mediator. He begins to appeal to God, hey, like, what if you find certain righteous people there? Could it be spared? Right? He appeals on the behalf of Job, who he knows is there, not Job, um, Lot, who is there, his nephew. He doesn't want to see Lot destroyed, and so he's, he's appealing for the people. Um, there's a, a section in Amos chapter 7 where this also happens, where God gives pictures to Amos of what could happen if there's not movement by the people. Jonah and Nineveh is another good example, right? Jonah comes in, and when we talked through Jonah, we talked about how poor of a gospel presentation he gives, right? He just shows up and basically says, uh, wrath is coming upon you. And then just, like, that's his sermon. He's done. He's, he's, he's finished. He doesn't give them any hope, any steps to take. And yet, what does Nineveh do? They respond, hey, we don't want that. And they begin to repent and cry out to God for forgiveness and help, and God spares them. This is a pattern that God uses. He communicates what could happen. Judgment could happen in order to invoke a change in his people or a change in the people that he's communicating to. This will happen unless you do something different than what you're currently doing. God doesn't communicate plans with a goal of changing those plans. He communicates plans with the goal of changing the receivers of those plans. That's what God does. God isn't the one changing. His character's not changing. His outlook on life isn't changing. His eternal destiny isn't changing. Where he's taking people isn't changing. But he says, unless you change, this is what we would have to do. And then it brings about the necessary change. It brings about the necessary repentance just as he planned so that he can now treat us the way that he wants. He isn't changing his mind. He's not changing his plans. He's changing the current reality to a reality that he desires, and he uses prayer to do that. He gets glory and honor by his people appealing to him and his promises, which leads us into number two. Appealing to God for his promises to be kept brings him glory when he acts to fulfill it. Appealing to God for his promises to be kept brings him glory when he acts to fulfill Moses is invited to be the advocating mediator for the children of Israel, right? The idea is unless Moses acts, God will carry through with this. Psalm 106 helps us to see that. In Psalm chapter 106, verse 23, a psalm that recounts what's happening in the, in the history of Israel, coming out of that golden calf uh, narrative. It says in verse 23, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses is being invited into this story to act as the advocating mediator, to bring about change in the people so that God doesn't have to act in the ways that his justice would demand. It's similar to um, 
I've done this. You've probably done this as a parent. Uh, maybe like you can't get your kids to to start moving and acting on all of your appeals to clean up the living room or to clean up their bedrooms, right? Like there's just toys everywhere, right? And so you, you've said it multiple times, clean up your toys, clean up your room, clean up the living room, but there's, there's little to no response, right? At least not the response I'm looking for. So what I'll typically jump to is, hey, that's fine. Like I can do the cleaning for you, right? And here's what my cleaning looks like. It, it involves a big black trash bag, and the things that you like go into it, never to be seen again, right? When I, when I jump to that step, well, you wouldn't believe the movement in my house, right? Like people are all of a sudden picking up people's toys that aren't even theirs, right? Like they just don't want to see a sibling's toy end up to the disappearing bag where you never see those things again, right? Do I want to throw away my kids' toys? No, I, I, I use my hard work, working money to pay for those toys, right? Like I'm not in the habit of throwing away my money, right? I am in the habit of getting my kids to act the way that they need to, right? And that's what God does when he communicates what could happen. Hey, this is what I'm going to do. Even if I don't say, unless you get up and start doing this, that's the implication, right? Like I don't have to say, hey, unless y'all start cleaning, this is what's going to happen. I just say, hey, that's fine. Y'all haven't cleaned up yet. I'm going to go get the trash bag and I'm going to start doing it. And all of a sudden I come back with the trash bag and there's no toys to pick up right? I've created the change that I wanted to create. Did I change my mind about what I was going to do? No. What changed was how my kids were acting. Moses stands as the mediator to create that change, right? Like God's going to do this, but Moses steps in and says, don't. Like, like we, can still, we can still fix this. This doesn't have to happen, right? For our kids, how many of y'all have seen uh, the movie Fox and the Hound? Right? I asked my kids this. They said they've seen this. Um, at the very end of that movie, I was thinking about this as I was studying yesterday, and I pulled up the clip on YouTube just because I wanted to see it again. Fox and the Hound is a story about a fox and a hound who are best friends, who really have no business being best friends, right? Because as they grow up, they're supposed to be enemies. The hound is supposed to help the hunter get the fox, right? But they were best friends growing up, right? And now they've grown up, and they are at odds with each other. And at the very end, the hunter is ready to kill the fox, right? The fox is, is in the water and he's standing there, he's helpless, and the, and the hunter's going to kill. And what does the hound do? Copper steps in and says, no, or Copper's the fox, isn't he? Todd's the dog, whichever one it is. The dog steps in front and makes an appeal as a mediator, as an advocate, like, don't kill him. That's what Moses is doing here. He's stepping in front of God's wrath and saying, this doesn't have to happen. Like this can still be fixed. That's what Jesus does as the ultimate advocate, as the ultimate mediator. As we're gonna see, this passage continues to unpack. Moses can't do this sufficiently, right? He wants to stand up and say, God, if you're not willing to forgive him, take me instead, like punish me. Let me serve as the sacrifice. And what does God say? That's not gonna do. That's not gonna work. But it does create this sense of desire in us. We need somebody who can be that. We need somebody who can stand in our place and say it doesn't have to happen because I'll take it for them. This passage is pointing us to Jesus. God delays what could happen here. He doesn't not punish Israel in the ways that he could because Moses is perfect and right and just and good. No, he does it in a sense to point us to what Jesus ultimately fulfills in the New Testament. It's a delayed punishment. The punishment still has to happen, but as Romans 3 tells us, he pours it out on his son instead for his people. 
God always planned to save Israel. He could have killed them already, right? But he says he's going to send Moses down and he's pushing Moses to be that mediator. And by not leaving God alone, because he says, let me alone and I'll do this. And Moses says, well, I won't let you alone then. By not letting God alone, Moses doesn't allow God to move in the direction of judgment. And it's exactly what God wanted to happen. He doesn't want to move in this direction. He wants the people to change. And that's the change that he starts to create. Now, we talked about open theism briefly last week. I just made reference to it. Open theism is the idea that the plot of the story is still open with God's plans only being accomplished on the condition that we choose them. That's not what we would believe here. At our church, we would believe that the Lord knows the beginning and the end and the plot in between. And every plan of his will be accomplished. And this is part of his plan. And he's moving the pieces around and he's adjusting reality so that his justice doesn't have to come down and wipe Israel out. He's making provision so that it can be delayed until Christ comes, just as he could have killed Adam and Eve in the garden. And he puts a substitute in place there, an insufficient animal with skins that are shed to, to clothe Adam and Eve and blood is shed to atone for their sins temporarily. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus, exactly as God planned. Does God reverse his plans? No. Does God reverse what's happening before him? Absolutely. He takes us from death to life. He takes us from being dead in our sin to alive to Christ. He absolutely reverses that. Number two, does God erase his salvation? Now we get into more of the text that we read about today. Does God reverse or erase his salvation? Moses talks about this idea of blotting out from his book, which for those of us that know kind of where the Bible goes uh, as it continues to move forward into the New Testament, we typically think of the book of life when we hear this, right? Now, here's a little quiz for you. Who, who would remember or say they remember when I did a whole sermon on the book of life? Does anybody remember me doing that? Raise your hand if you remember that. I'm just curious. Okay. Um, it was taught, surprisingly to me, because I don't know how long you think ago that was, January 31st, 2016. So almost eight years ago. Ugh, time flies, right? Uh, does anybody remember what book of the Bible we were in when we taught on the book of life? Genesis at Sarah's funeral, right? So we talked about how Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's the first funeral that we really encounter in Scripture. And so we, we did kind of a deep dive into the book of life. I'm not going to teach that again today. I do want to go back and hopefully post the notes from that sermon and maybe even a link to the podcast from that day. So if you want to go back and listen to it, it's an hour and 23 minutes long. Some of you were here back in the day when sermons used to be an hour and 23 minutes long. You think they're long today. They used to be twice as long sometimes. So um, you might need two sittings to get through that, but we'd like to post that just so you can go back and listen to it. But in that, we talked about different books. There, there's, there's multiple books that are referenced in, throughout Scripture in regards to judgment. In fact, Revelation 20 and 21 mention multiple books being pulled at the end when people are standing before God, one of those being the book of life. Now, what's being referenced here when Moses goes back and says, okay, I got to make atonement for you and your sin. He goes back up onto the mountain, returns to the Lord. He says, they've sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. 
But now if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, it's almost like his thought gets interrupted. If you'll forgive your sin, but, but if you don't, like maybe you're not going to, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What's he referencing here? Well, what's the context for, if you're reading this cover to cover, how you would understand blotting up to this point? Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. He says he's going to blot out people. What does he do? He brings the flood. Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. He says something similar in verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. So the book that we're currently studying, we've already seen the concept of blotting a little bit. 17 verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then in 23 verse 23 of Exodus, he says, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. So the same people that he just referenced about, I'm going to give the land and wipe those people out, he referenced already back in, the, in, in earlier in Exodus that he was going to blot them out. In the context of how you would understand this, this idea of blotting up to this point, you would really think in terms more of what's known as the book of living or the book of the living in, in Scripture. Um, Psalm 139.16 documents how David sees God having all of his days on this earth already written down. Uh, Psalm 69, 28, David's talking about uh, blotting out his enemies and not recording them with the righteous. Almost like there's two different books, like there's the book of life where the redeemed are written, blot them out and make sure they don't end up in that book, okay? What I would suggest here is that the blotting that, that, that Moses is talking about here is really tied to dying physically, because that's really what he feels like is at stake, right? Like he's wanting Israel not to be wiped out, not to be killed, not to be obliterated, for him not to start over with Moses and his descendants. So when he says, hey, don't, don't blot them out, blot me out instead, basically, I think he's really alluding to not what we would think of in regards to, wow, can your name be removed from the book of life? that we hear about in Revelation? No, I think he's really saying, like, kill me instead of them, right? Let me be the sacrifice, don't let it be them. Why would I say that? Because the book of life seems to have far more security than what would be suggested here. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, says this. After, after his disciples have returned with ministerial success, he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Revelation chapter 3, 5. That was the springboard passage that I used for why we as Christians rejoice in death. It's because our names are written in heaven and they are secure there. Revelation 3 verse 5 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
If you read Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, both of those passages reference people worshiping the beast at the end of time, being subjected to the deception of Satan and his plans at the end of time. And the passages, both of those passages, 13.8 of Revelation, 17.8 of Revelation, both of them say people who aren't written in the book of life fall to this. It's not people who fall to this, have their names blotted out of the book of life. It's if your name is written down, you don't do these things. There's a security that's communicated with the book of life. I think Moses is referencing something different, this idea of an untimely death, right? Like, don't take Israel, take me instead, right? Number one, God doesn't remove people from his eternal secure grip, but does work to remove rebellion on this earth. He doesn't remove people from his eternally secure grip, but he does work to remove rebellion on this earth. Moses says there's need for further atonement after the idol was destroyed, after the gold was drank, and after the purging took place, right? They've They've already dealt with the idol. He's busted it up. He's crushed it up. He's ground it up. They've drank of it to symbolize that they are done with it. They've even had this purging where 3,000 of them were killed, and yet there's still further atonement that needs to happen. Why? Because there's people who are left alive, who are going to be left alive, who are still guilty of sinning. Now, these are people that most likely responded to that appeal. Who wants to come back to the Lord's side? Well, just saying that you want to come back to the Lord's side doesn't wipe your sins away, right? Like it's not, hey, who wants to do better going forward? If you want to do better going forward, we can forgive you of that. Come on back here. Like those people come, but then Moses says, gosh, we're still not done. Like this still isn't okay. There has to be atonement for your sin. 3,000 have been killed, yeah, but those seem to be people who were refusing to turn back. And this judgment was given to them because they weren't interested in forgiveness. But now Moses feels a need to get these sins covered for the forgiven or the people that want to be forgiven. Those still alive who broke the covenant on some level. Aaron was super guilty of this. Was Aaron in the 3,000 who died? No. Is Aaron a part of the plague that happens still later and dies? No but he's guilty. He's sinful, right? Like that's the type of person that that Moses is appealing for here. Don't blot that guy out. Blot me out instead. Don't blot the one out who has come back wanting to be on your side. Let's figure out how to make this work. Moses appeals to God. He doesn't minimize their sin, right? He calls it great. He says, you've sinned a great sin, he tells the people. Then he comes to God and says, they've sinned a great sin, right? They've sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, which he told them not to do. And he says, if God won't forgive them, he wants his name blotted out of the book written by God. This isn't Moses saying, like, I reject you, God. It's not him giving an ultimatum. Like, it's not him saying, like, hey, if if you're gonna do this, like, if you're not gonna forgive them, then I want out. Just go ahead and kill me too. Like, that's not what he's saying. Like, you could read it that way and think that he's like, pushing back and challenging God and saying like, hey, if you won't do what I want you to do, then I'm out, I don't want you. What he's really saying is, is if you can't forgive them, would it work for me to die in their place? Would it work for me to die in their place? Could, could we work out that arrangement? Could, 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 you, could you not kill them? Could you kill me instead? 
The concept that sin could be forgiven through a representative with sacrifices is understood by Moses. Remember, he's already heard about the priest. He's already heard about the tabernacle. He's already getting this concept that sin requires bloodshed. He's wanting to know, can my blood count? He wants to identify with his people. He wants to offer himself as a sacrifice. Maybe similar to what Paul says in Romans 9, that if he could, he would stand in the gap for the Israelites and get them saved. Like if God could could take him instead. But God can't accept the offer, right? Moses isn't suitable. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book, but now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. He says, sorry, Moses, that's just not gonna work. What does he tell the Israelites they have to bring sacrificially? They have to bring like a, really essentially like a newborn lamb, right? Like one who hasn't been stained by this world, one who hasn't subjected himself to the working of Israel to where maybe they, they are now less than perfect because maybe they've got a bad hip because they've been working for Israel or they've been subjecting themselves to the, to the economy of Israel, right? Like you can't be the Israelite family that says, hey, like we're bringing our, 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 our really old sheep. Boy, he has been faithful to us. He is the best sheep we've ever had, right? Like he's older, but man, he has proven his faithfulness. Notice that God doesn't call for that type of sheep, right? Because it's not about our good works, Right? It's not, give me the best, most faithful sheep that you have. That's what we'll sacrifice each time that we bring your sins before God. No, it's bring the one who's been completely unstained, like the perfect, like the unblemished one. That's why Moses can't stand in the place. If it was bring your hardest working, most faithful sheep, well, then Moses makes sense, right? Like he's the most faithful, hardest working Israelite. But God says, eh, it's not going to work. Are you, are, you, are you great? Do you have favor in my sight? Do I love you? Absolutely, but you can't be the sacrifice for the rest of these people because you're a sinner yourself. He rejects Moses' offer. And God brings judgment with a plague. We don't know the details of it. We don't know how many people die or if people die, but there's still this, hey, I'll visit their sin upon them. He brings that plague upon the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. It's less severe, though, than what he had initially communicated. You have justice, but you have it being coupled with mercy. Why? Because there's an advocate. Judgment and mercy. Verse 33, he's going to respond. All right, whoever sinned, I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to bring this plague. Verse 34, the mercy. I'm going to remain with you. Your, my angel's going to go with you, Right? I'm gonna lead you to the land. Justice and mercy, we see here. It's an appeal to us as well to live faithfully in the midst of our security, right? Just because we're in the secure eternal grip of God doesn't mean that we can live cavalier and do whatever we want to here on this earth. There's a responsibility to live our life in subjection to Christ, to do what he calls us to do. Let's look at what this means in number two. Appealing to God for his forgiveness is possible individually, but it's limited when it comes to appealing for others. Oh, would it be that all of us would give ourselves up if we could for the sake of another, right? If there was somebody else in our life who refuses to come to the Lord's side, many of us would say, Lord, let me stand in their place. Let me stand in their place so they can be accepted. 
And that's just not how salvation works. Like, like we're limited in what we can do for others. Full responsibility for us individually, and God extends forgiveness to those of us who will come. But we can't come for someone else. We can receive our own forgiveness by appealing to God, and we can even work to see others forgiven too, particularly those of us, that, that, particularly those who are already believers. In Philippians 4.3, Philippians chapter four, verse, verse three, we've got two women who are at odds in the church. And Paul appeals to, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintites to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice how these women are at odds. They're in sin. They need to be called out. They need to be brought back. They need to create unity amongst themselves. Notice that Paul doesn't say, hey, and be sure to tell them if they don't start living in unity, we'll take their names out of the book of life. He doesn't say that, right? He says, because their names are in the book of life, we need to work to fix this because these are redeemed people who need to act like redeemed people. That's what he appeals to here. First John chapter 5, verse 16 We're told to pray for others who we see caught in sin, that God would give them life. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. We're to to work towards the forgiveness of others by calling them to the Lord's side. But we can't do it for them. We can't stand in the place for them. We can certainly have our sins forgiven. Acts chapter 3 How glorious is it that God doesn't blot us out. Instead, he chooses to blot out our sin. In verse 18, it says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. That's what our hope is. There's not this threat that our names are gonna get blotted out. It's the hope that we can come and have our sins blotted out. They can be forgiven. We're limited in our ability to appeal for one's salvation, though, as each individual is held accountable for their sin. 1 John 5, 16 through 17 goes on to say, there's some people who commit sins that lead to death, that God takes them because of their rebellion here on this earth. Um, we don't know a whole lot of detail about that, but I mean, you can't help but think about, um, uh, I mean, my mind just completely went blank. Um, the two people in Acts who lie and are killed. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, thank you. Um, these are two individuals that, that die an untimely death from our perspective, right? They die because of their sin. There's rebellion there. God's talking about these, uh, these different people groups who he has to blot out because of their rebellion and their sin. There's this, this reference in 1 John 5 to sins that lead to death, this ongoing rebellion that God puts an end to, right? We can come for forgiveness. We can't come for someone else. God doesn't erase salvation. He calls us to live faithfully in our security. Moses says, let me stand in place of them. God says, that can't happen. That can't happen. We're not gonna wipe them out. We've already said that. God's already promised that. He's already moved in a different direction, right? But Moses can't make full atonement. He says, there's still gonna be consequences for these sins. We, we don't know exactly what happens, but in verse 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. That moves us into chapter 33, and we'll go quickly. Number three, does God depart from his people? The application for us is we require God's presence in all of our steps. Require God's presence in all of your steps. God's active, 
favorable presence can be impacted by our actions, although he never truly abandons his people. He's communicating a way forward after dealing with their sin with a proposal that would have been tempting to anyone not truly his. I want you to see what God proposes here. He says, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, to your offspring, I'll give it. I will send an angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, does God really intend to do this? I don't think so. Why? Because he's already talked about the priesthood, the tabernacle, like God's not about to abandon all those plans. But he does propose something that if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes is appealing. He says, I'm going to give you the blessings of being my people without me. I'm going to give you the blessings of being my people and not give you me. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times that's what we want. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, right? I want joy and contentment and peace in my life. I don't want to do it God's way. I don't want him getting involved in telling me what to do and what not to do. But I certainly want all the blessings that I read about. It's where a lot of us will find ourselves at times. We want the blessings of God. And if we can avoid having God, that might work out best for us because then we don't have to do things that he wants us to do, but we can get all the things that we want from him. You think God's really going to allow this to happen? I don't think so. I think he's proposing something that if the people aren't truly his, they probably would jump on. But look at their response. The idea of, of having everything of God without God, verse four says, when the people heard this disastrous word, hopefully that's what it would be for us if we found out that we could have the things of God without God, that that would be disastrous for us, that that's not what we're looking for. We want him. When they hear this, they mourn. They don't put on their ornaments. They strip everything off just as God told them to. They don't want to be a stiff-necked people. It seems like good news that's being communicated here. God's going to give them to the promised land in spite of their failure. He's going to deliver on the land promises. He's going to remove their enemies. But God isn't going to go with them. He says, if I do, I'm going to consume you along the way. He says, I'll just let you go as stiff-necked people. It's ironic that what they really desired, God in their midst, that's why they created the idol, like we want God physically with us. What they want is about to be stripped away. They're gonna miss out on it completely. And God's essentially saying, hey, the, the impression I'm getting is that you want to do this without me, so let's just throw that out there. What if we did it without me? Is that what you want? That's what he's proposing. And their response is, no, that's not what we want. We don't want your blessings without your favorable presence. And Moses responds, he says, I, I see through this. I realize I, the presence of God, it's the only hope we have as we continue on this journey. Like Moses isn't okay with this. Moses goes to this tent of meeting, which is described in verses seven through 11. This is pre-tabernacle. This is where Moses would have met with, with the Lord. And it says that he went to the Lord in verse 12 See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know who you'll send with me. You're just saying this angel's gonna go. That's not good enough. You said you know me by name. You found favor. I found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways 
that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider this too, that this nation is your people. Like he says, we gotta have your presence. God responds and says, my presence will go with you, the singular used, it'll go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest. Going forward in faith after tragic loss, colossal failure, major life changes is only possible if God is with us. It's only possible, like the only way you can move forward after big time failure or big time loss in your life. There's a whole lot of other things that can be taken from you. Spouses can be taken from you. Kids can be taken from you. Jobs can be taken from you. All the things that we want to find security in, those things can be taken from you. Where we as Christians are supposed to be is that anything can be taken from us as long as God is with me. If God's presence is removed, that's when disaster sets in. That's when I can't go forward. But if God is with me, I can go through the valley of the shadow of death and end up on the other side. I've got to have God with me though. Moses won't settle for anything less than God's presence. He doesn't want an angel. He wants the almighty. Not having God would breed terror and restlessness. He says, we've got to have you. Israel's mourning. They're, they're responding They won't put on the jewelry. They won't get ready to go without him. Genesis 35, you'll remember that Jacob and his family fell into some idolatry. We won't read it for time's sake, but in Genesis 35, verses two through four, Jacob has to call his family to repentance. And one of the things that they do is they sacrifice their earrings and their idols. There was some type of tie in that culture. We've already seen they took off their earrings to make this idol. There was some type of symbolic tying of By taking these things off, we are showing you outwardly we don't want idols in our life. Number two, appealing to God for his activity in our lives is honoring to him and keeps us distinct in the eyes of others. God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. I will give you rest. Look what Moses goes on to say. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, hey, it's not good enough that you just go with me. You got to go with all of us. Why? Because this is important to your reputation. This shows others that we are distinctly different. And that hasn't changed. Here in the New Testament as God's people, we are to be the type of people that we don't move. We don't take steps in our life unless we believe God's going with us, right? We don't pursue a spouse. We don't pursue a job. We don't pursue a house. We don't pursue anything in this life unless we believe God goes with us in that. Because you can take my house, you can take my spouse, you can take my job, you can take everything. I gotta have God. I don't want any of those things without him. That's what Moses says. He's like, we can't go forward. We don't, the promised land, boy, it's gonna be awesome. It's not awesome without you. Gotta have you or we don't want it. Moses wants God with all of them. It's what sets them apart. It's what makes them unique. Notice the ways that Moses has prayed in both of these situations. He's, he's giving back to God what God has said to him, Right? I put in my notes, one commentator said, the most persuasive, now listen to this carefully, the most persuasive prayers argue from premises that God has revealed in his word. The most persuasive prayers argue from the premises that God has revealed in his word. 
Moses is appealing to what God has already said himself. Those are the prayers that we pray. We pray the prayers that God has promised to answer. We pray the prayers for God's plans that he has assured us will happen. Those are the persuasive ones. Those are the ones that God says, I'll answer, because I get glory for doing what I always said I would do. Should be our same desire, not willing to have blessings of this life unless God goes with us. God says, I'll go with you. I'm gonna give you the knowledge of my ways. I'm gonna grant you rest along the way. I'm gonna show you things. Psalm 103, seven says that God made known his ways to Moses. Moses prays for it. The psalmist says, God did it. God answered it. Our relationship with God is meant to set us apart, his presence in our lives. Now, here's what I want you to note. God promises to be with the people of Israel. He grants the presence because of the mediator's relationship to him. You see that? Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. Does it say, because the people have found favor in my sight? It says, for you have found favor in my sight. I will treat the people favorably because of my relationship to you, Moses. Now, what does that mean? We've got a better mediator. And my favorable treatment from God. So when I read Romans 8, 28, and it says that God always works good for his children, I don't have to wonder, man, does that apply to me? Does God view me that way? Does God view me favorably to give me his goodness? It's not on those grounds. It's on the grounds of the mediator, right? Jesus, the perfect mediator. God says, I will treat my people. I will treat your people. I will treat the people of God favorably because you have found favor in my sight. You're my beloved son and who I am well pleased, the gospels tell us. That's why we're secure in, in, in going forward in our journey after major tragedies, major loss, major failures, How do we move forward? Man, we trust that God's presence is going with us. Well, why would God's presence go with us when we're we're big mess ups? Like when we don't trust him like we should and we, we fall back into sin. Well, it's not because of our favorable deeds to him. It's because of our mediator. God says, I'll go with you because Moses, we, we, we've got a relationship. You're the mediator and and I'm accepting you. And he tells us like, I'm going with you because of Jesus. That's the assurance and hope we have. Jesus gives us security that God's presence will always be with us. The application for us today, more like a summary sentence. This is what should be normal for us as believers. My desire for God's presence in my life above all else, right? So tying it back to the idolatry piece. Do you want God or do you want things? If I'm a Christian, my desire for God's presence in my life above all else should drive me to a normal pattern. This is what is normal for me. Living faithfully for him, praying regularly for his promises to be accomplished, and me seeking forgiveness when I'm prone to stray towards idols. That's the normal rhythm for a Christian. They live faithfully. They pray to God and say, fulfill the promises that you've made to me. Right? You have communicated these things, so I'm, I'm arguing from the premises of what you have given to me, and boy, I'm going to mess up, and when I do, I'm just going to keep coming back to your side. 
I'm never going to be able to vanquish idols completely from my life until Jesus comes back. So when they creep in and when I'm confronted about it and I see it, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to strip the earrings off. I'm going to bury them like they do in Jacob's family to never put them back on again. But even when I go dig them up and put them back on again, I'm going to keep confessing and keep coming back to you. And when I feel guilty about it and I wonder, can I move forward into the promised land? Can I move forward into my journey? I'm gonna remember that Jesus is the one who gives the favor. Because he's in right relationship with God, God chooses to be favorable towards me. That's our assurance, that's our hope. Let's pray together. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for a passage like this that reminds us that we can rest assured that your plans will always be accomplished that our salvation is eternally secure with you and that we can count on your presence in our life. But God, help us to look at this and see that it has nothing to do with us being worthy of those things. We haven't earned the right for you to keep promises to us. We haven't earned the right for you to keep saving us. We haven't earned the right for you to stay with us. It's because a mediator stepped in, a perfect mediator when the gun was rightly pointed at us and we deserve to die, you stepped in front and said, we're gonna do it differently. We don't have to do it this way. Thank you for sending your son to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Lord, there've been great men and women that have come and gone over the years. And in spite of their greatness, they were never great enough to be able to do this for your people. Only Jesus, only Jesus can stand in front of your wrath and absorb it on the behalf of your people. God, as we move forward in our faith journey, many of us have experienced failure, loss, tragedy. Lord, help us to realize that you could take everything from us. And as long as you're willing to give us you, we can go through anything. Lord, help us, help our young people to have a desire that says, I don't want anything that this world offers. As I step out from underneath my parents and I start looking for my own job and I start looking for my own spouse and, and I want to have my own kids and my own life, Lord, help them to never be content with those things if you don't go with them. Give us all such a craving and a desire for your presence in our life. And Lord, when we wander, bring us back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.